Let me read this morning for you the Word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me uh, does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me also does the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Just remember this, that there's a good bit of the gospel according to John that is dedicated to the Passion Week. That what we've been talking about for the last many weeks has taken place during the Passion Week. That's the last week that Jesus spent on earth before he was crucified, uh, dead and buried and resurrected and ascended back into heaven. This is one of the things that John's gospel is noted for, is giving so much attention to that Passion Week that we don't find in the other gospels. One of the things that I meant to mention last week, and I think I missed it, if I, if I didn't, and I'm just repeating myself, then forgive me, but just have to live with it. Uh, remarkable things going on in this conversation between Jesus uh, and the disciples at this point. Jesus has, uh, has announced to them that one of the twelve was going to betray him. And according to the Gospel of Mark, which we don't have here in the Gospel of John, is this, is something really remarkable took place at that point when Jesus revealed to this group that one of them was going to betray him. And that is this, that one by one, each one of them asked Jesus, is it I? That is a very, very revealing statement. Because it says to us that every one of them understood that this betrayal that was about to take place, that they were capable of doing it.
capable of betraying the Son of God. I wonder sometimes how well we know ourselves. I mean, how often have we wondered how it is that people could do some of the things that they've done? You see, my friends, the people that I worry the very most about are those who do not believe that if left to themselves, they are capable of doing really bad things. The holier-than-thouers Very often it's easy for us to conclude that, you know, Judas was just a sturdy, rotten scumbag. There's a sense in which Judas was the perfect representation of all people. There's a sense in which every one of us should be willing to admit that if I had been there, it could have been me. I could have been the one who betrayed Jesus Christ. It's the people who don't believe that that I worry the most about because I know this, that one way or another, God will eventually bring them to their knees because of their arrogance and their pride. Because they do not know themselves to be the sinner that they are. Jesus reveals some very important things to the disciples as he continues in his conversation, in his discourse that we have recorded here in John chapter 14. He is teaching them theology. Jesus was many things, but perhaps the foremost of all of those was he was a teacher. He went about teaching that was his business. That was his profession. That was his calling. And one of the most important things that we should glean from this lesson from Jesus in this uh, gospel according to John in chapter 14 is how he enlightens them not to, he enlightens them to the reality of the one God who is. He reveals God to them perhaps in a way that no one ever had before. Many of these things that he says at this point are probably very new to these men. He shows them, he gives them a very different picture, a very different perspective of the reality of God than the average Jewish person had. Especially the teachers and those who were considered to have a superior understanding of God and what he is like. Years ago, and I've used this illustration before and I use it over and over again because it's just so really clear in what I want to say to you this morning. But years ago, I was, uh, I used to go to all, they had a chamber of commerce breakfast once a month, and I went to all the chambers of commerce breakfast for years and years, and 
and that sort of thing. And I was sitting in a booth eating breakfast with some people, and I don't even remember who the people were, people that I'd met and having a conversation with them. And there was a person talking in the booth behind me, and, and I want you to know something. I don't tend to eavesdrop on people's conversations. I don't try to listen to what's going on in, you know, in conversations around me and that sort of thing. But this man was speaking so loudly you could not help but hear him. It's as if he wanted everybody in the whole restaurant to hear what he was saying. According to this man, the doctrine of the Trinity is not biblical, but is a complete fabrication of the church. Now you can imagine what background this particular man had. I mean, I can't say for certain, but I could take a real guess at where he was coming from. I didn't say a word. What I wanted to say to him is, what in the world do you do with John chapter 14? The very teaching of Jesus Christ himself in which we see the doctrine of the Trinity revealed in a way that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. See, one of the things that Jesus is doing is schooling these Jewish people who had an understanding they thought was a biblical understanding of who God is and Jesus taking their model and blowing it to smithereens. Now, say to you, because some of you have heard this before, that the doctrine of the Trinity was formalized by the church principally at the councils of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and Chalcedon in 451 A.D. That is a historic, those are historical facts. That what was going on there was this, was the church was grappling with the teachings of Scripture in regard to the reality of God. They weren't coming up with some man-made understanding of this or the other. They were were trying to make sense of all about God that the Bible reveals to us. And we see this reflected, this idea of the triune God reflected so very, very clearly in John chapter 14. You cannot be true to it. Unless you understand that it's what Jesus is teaching here. He doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit. You need to understand that. But he, all, he does mention the Son and the Father and their relationship to one another. One of the things that Jesus wants to assure these these men, because he knows the trial and tribulation they're about to enter into. They're still kind of oblivious to what's going on here. They don't know what's going to happen the next day. But Jesus does, and Jesus is doing all he can to 
prepare them for what lies ahead. One of the things that he makes it very clear to them is this, is, is, is you look at this as a bad thing. I'm leaving and it's going to crush you and you're going to be hurt uh, and you're going to wonder how anything's going to come uh, good out of all of what's going to happen here. But you need to understand that I'm going for a lot of reasons and one of those reasons is I am going specifically for you. I am going specifically for your benefit. in order to prepare a place for you in my Father's house. Lori and I have been traveling some. Over the last few weeks, we went on vacation a few weeks back. Uh, just this last week, we, it was our anniversary. We had our 38th anniversary. Can you believe she's put up with me for 38 years? <laughs> so we went up to St. Augustine, which has gotten to be our place to go. And we pretty much go to St. Augustine every an anniversary. But you can imagine that before we went, we made reservations. You know, you just, most people today don't go on the road. There was a time when you used to do that. You just, you know, you go on a trip and you just find a motel and stop and whatever. But today it's all about reservations. You don't want to get someplace and not have a place to stay. So we made reservations for all of our ongoings there. But one of the things that we need to understand this morning is that when we place our hope and trust in our love in Christ Jesus, that Jesus has prepared, he's made a reservation for us. There is a place in his household for you specifically. It's not a reservation that you make for yourself. It's one that he has made for you already. I mean, one of the things that Jesus is doing here is this. He knows these guys are in distress, and he knows that distress level is going to go out the roof over the next few days. He wants them to understand, have a glimpse of what lies on the other side of it. To give them comfort even amidst the very great trial that is about to descend down upon them. Your reservation was made back at the very beginning of time. You know, you were born and, you know, at some point you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, I'm assuming. If you haven't, I want to encourage you in that direction. He is, in fact, the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through Him. The very words of Jesus. It's hard for them to believe that it's to their advantage that he is about to leave them. He has a purpose for them in going.
we live in a very becoming more and more so politically correct society where you're supposed to believe certain things and say only certain things etc 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 The general thought of people today is that there, in fact, are many ways to God. If indeed there is a God, then there has to be many ways to get to that God. Jesus says here, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes, no one comes to the Father but through me, 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 me. That's as clear as it can be. That kind of statement, my friends, in this world that we live in today would not be received very well because it is very inclusive. R.C. Sproul writes this, he says, there is nothing more politically incorrect, more repugnant to the relativists of this age than claims of exclusivity given unto Jesus. Mark my words. As time passes, the church will become more and more under attack by this culture that is consuming our nation. Because Christ claims exclusively that he is the only one, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. Mark my words, persecution will increase. But what we're confronted with is this. He says, no one comes to the Father except through me, period. That's exclusive. There's no other options. There's no other possibilities. He's it. He's the way to God. He's the avenue to God. Every other avenue is a dead-end street. Now, either that is a true statement or it's not. There's only two possibilities. It can't be one of those things that you can interpret it in different ways. It's either this or it's that. There's no in-between. If it's not a true statement, then you and I are living under a false hope. We're wasting our lives, basically. Chasing after shadows. And we should be pitied for it. In other words, people ought to look upon us and be sorry for us because we're so stupid. And so easily led astray.
But what if it's true? That means Jesus is the one and only key to eternity. I don't know how you could come up with a statement more exclusive than this one. Philip speaks up and says, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus, who's ever seen me, has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. In other words, Jesus is a perfect reflection of the Father who's in heaven. You see, there is such a likeness between the three persons of the Trinity. There's a sense in which you can say, if you've experienced one, you have experienced the others. That if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Holy Spirit, and you have seen the Father. And if you've seen the Father, you've seen the, the Son of God, and you've seen the Holy Spirit. Each one of them bears the common character of God. And they are the only ones that do. So there's a sense in which when you've seen one, you've seen the others. When you've experienced the Father, there's a sense in which you've also experienced the Son. And you've also experienced the Holy Spirit. They all three bear, not partly, but fully, the character of God. God is triune. He's one in essence, but three in person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are in absolute unity and absolute agreement with one another always. I have a wonderful wife and you know it's true if you know her we rarely disagree on things but on occasion we do and normally she's the one who's right but, but can you imagine a relationship between persons that never, ever disagree with one another on anything, ever, for all of eternity. They are in complete unity with one another. Can you imagine beings having a relationship in, with each other in which they have never once in all of eternity argued with anybody about, with each other about anything, ever? It's not even on their radar. Do 
They've never once in all of eternity been divided over anything. They've never disagreed, any one of them, with the other two about anything. Not once have any of the three had an ill thought about the other two. None of them has ever been jealous of the others. None of them has been ever been angry with the others. They work in absolute harmony in absolutely everything, absolutely all the time. Have you ever known people like that? Sin affects us in a number of ways, but one of those is this, is we try to bring God down to our level. You understand that there's a sense in which the gospel itself lifts, lifts us up. Not that we're going to be God's, but in a sense to God's level. And I'm talking about strictly a moral level, not that we're going to be little gods or anything like that ever. That's not going to happen. You need to understand that. We're not become, going to become infused into the Trinity. But as members of the completely established eternal kingdom, each one of us will perfectly reflect the morality and the character of God. We will truly do unto others as we would have them do unto us, always, without exception. Our love for the brethren and for God will be pure with every effect of sin being completely removed from it. No more place for things like jealousy. No strife. If you think you've got God all figured out, rest assured you don't. You don't come close. One of the amazing things about this is he gives us the opportunity through the gospel to spend eternity getting to know him. And the more we know, the more we will understand that there is to know. That God is boundless. He's infinite in every conceivable way. He's also infinite in ways that are literally inconceivable to us. 
One of the most amazing things of all of this is this, that that God wants to have anything to do with you and I. Does he need us? Does he thrive off of something that he gets from us? Are we essential to his being? No. I can remember reading a book back when I was either right before I became a Christian, right about the time I became a Christian, and and the author in that book made this statement. He said that heaven is a free gift, but in the end it will cost you everything. And I think, boy, that's a really great statement. You know, it means giving up everything and giving in to him completely and absolutely. In other words, dying to yourself. But you know what? I would say to you that that is a bad statement today. It sounded really good when I first heard it. Because reality is this, is your salvation hasn't even cost God everything. It cost him a whole lot. A lot more than you and I can possibly imagine. But it hasn't cost him absolutely everything. But don't doubt for a minute that he paid a very high price for you. An inconceivable price for you. To lay claim to you as his own. To make you a child of the living God who is. You think maybe that you have some understanding of the magnitude of the price that he paid for you? No way. You're way worse than you think you are. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. 1414. Do you believe that? To believe that God will do anything and absolutely everything that you ask of me. Let me ask you this. What if there's somebody in this room that you don't particularly like? What if you want God to strike that person dead right now? Do you think God's going to do that? We need to understand something, that Jesus is not making a blanket statement here that he will do anything and everything that your little heart desires. All you have to do is ask for it. Some people will read that into this statement that he makes here. God will not, God cannot do something that is contrary to his will. Let me ask you something. Would you want a God like that? Who could? (laughs) 
So we need to understand something that we sometimes people want to take some things literally that are not meant to be taken literally. Jesus is not saying that at all. In essence, what he's saying is this, is anything that you ask of me that it's according to the will of God, I will in fact do. As we said before, this is one of the major passages in Scripture that from which we derive the doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus doesn't lay out a perfect picture of what that looks like at this point. But the fact of the matter is, is when you take what he says here, The fact that God is one in essence, but three in persons, is the only possible explanation for what he says. That is the God who is. And we need to acknowledge that and we need to receive him don't make God into your own image people do it all the time this is God describing God nothing like it in existence unique absolutely when we see Jesus we see the Father when we see Jesus we see the Holy Spirit all being a perfect reflection of the Godhead. Does that sound mysterious to you? Can you, can you wrap your head around that? Really? Sounds almost like something you would see in some kind of a fantasy movie. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes I think I've got God kind of figured out and then what he, he throws me a curveball and makes me see I didn't see what I really thought I saw. We cannot worship a God of our own making, which is our sinful tendency to do. You see, as sinners, what we want to do is we want to bring God down to our level. What the gospel does, in a sense, is it lifts us from where we are and moves us up closer to God's level. Never that we'll ever be there. 
but as close to him as we can be without actually being him. Is that worth giving up this world for? You know, I wish, I wish, I wish that I could come close to describing to you what a heaven is like. I wish, I wish, I wish I could come, come to some semblance explaining of you, to you what eternal life is going to be like. There is nothing like it. There is no illustration. There's no way that I can describe it to you because I don't even understand it that well myself. The only thing I can tell you, it is way better than you can possibly imagine. Better than you can even think of. Of everything that exists, it is the one thing that is worthy of pursuing wholeheartedly and giving everything else up for. Take that path and you will, I promise you this, you will not regret it. You will experience eternal life. You know, I say this in funerals all the time, and I know I said this just recently, and that is this. Is you, it, it's when I have confidence that the person that I'm talking about is in heaven with Jesus. What I say is this, is, is as much as they love you, as much as they hate to see you moaning and groaning and hurting like you are, if given the opportunity to come back here just for a brief second, they wouldn't do it. As much as they love you and care about you, because where they are, they want to stay. Because they are at they, that place where they know it was well worth all of it. As a matter of fact, it was worth a whole lot more than all that maybe I gave up. Amen.